thank you for the invitation, which is an invitation with a purpose this morning. It's good to be back among you and to have the opportunity to lead you as we study these verses together. One of the struggles in a situation like this is, uh, as we explore in this way, is deciding on which passage to preach, where in the rich tapestry of God's word do we visit, what themes do we examine for our instruction and our challenge. And we can overthink and overcomplicate this when really coming back to the fundamental topic of the glory of God is the most appropriate thing we can do this morning. Because what we're about to do is not about me, and it's not about this church. It's about our creator and redeemer God, who would not withhold even his own son for our salvation and our blessing. And it's about his glory and his will. So let's turn to his word together and marvel at his power and glory that we may be inspired, encouraged, and equipped as we step into the world to serve him this week. If you have a Bible with you, then please turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. And if you will indulge me, we're going to read all 30 verses together. Remember, this is the most important part of our gathering and the only part that is divine and without error. This is the word of God. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. 
So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent, and the furnace so hot, that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Amen. And may God add his blessing to this reading from his precious word. And I'll take a moment just to wet my whistle after that long reading. The former heavyweight boxer James Quick Tillis, the self-styled boxing cowboy, tells the story of leaving his hometown of Tulsa in Oklahoma in the 1980s and traveling to Chicago. He describes disembarking his bus in the downtown area of the Windy City and two cardboard suitcases under his arms, he strode over to the foot of the Sears Tower. Putting down his luggage, he looked up at the majestic 1,500-foot skyscraper and inspired, he said to himself, I am going to conquer Chicago. And as his gaze drifted back to earth from the shimmering tower in front of him, he realized his suitcases were gone. Proof, if ever it was needed, that pride comes before a fall. Now, admittedly, in the grand scheme of things, Quick Tillis' ambition, the conquering of a handful of boxers uh, who happen to be living in one city, is not exactly the most selfish or vain aspiration that we can think of. For as we delve into biblical history, we find arrogance and conceit magnified to the levels of absurdity in those whose ambitions are to attain a rank comparable to the Lord himself. And one such example of this is found in King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Where does he fit in the timeline of salvation history? Well, following centuries of failure to keep their covenant responsibilities to love and obey the Lord, the Babylonian Empire was empowered to serve as God's instrument of judgment on his people in the land of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar was the ruler of that empire, and as part of his campaign, he destroyed the Jerusalem temple and carried off into exile the brightest and the best of the nation. Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who play a key role in our passage today, are four of those Hebrews who have ended up not only in Babylon, but serving in the court of the king himself, this same Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel, though this book is predominantly concerned with his visions and prophecies and actions, is absent in this chapter. Maybe he's serving somewhere else in the empire as this episode unfolds, 
But the dream that the king has had interpreted by Daniel in the power of the Lord in chapter 2 is the crucial background to how this chapter begins, and the arrogance and the hubris of the emperor is exposed. Nebuchadnezzar has been troubled by this dream of a statue with a head of gold, a chest and arms of silver, an abdomen and thighs of bronze and legs of iron, which was destroyed by a rock cut from the mountain. And Daniel deciphered it, that the head of gold was Babylon, and that the other materials represented kingdoms which would succeed it, all of which would ultimately be swept away by the kingdom of God, which would endure forever." And at the conclusion of the second chapter, we find the king thoroughly impressed by the power of God and his ability to reveal such mysteries. But by the time we reach chapter 3, we find a bit of change in his attitude. Over a period of time, it seems that the king is less impressed and more irritated by what he has been informed by the Lord. And nice as it was to hear that God has bestowed dominion and power and might and glory upon him, Nebuchadnezzar was unimpressed at the prospect of his empire ever coming to an end. Being chosen as an all-powerful king was great, but Nebuchadnezzar wanted a legacy. Specifically, he wanted the legacy of a kingdom that would last for all time. He wanted what was God's. And we see that clearly in the symbolism of his extravagant creation in verse 1 of chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. Can I have the first title on the slide, please? Now, we don't know exactly what this statue looked like, whether it's an effigy of Nebuchadnezzar himself or a representation of one of the pagan gods that he was worshiping at the time, but whatever it was, the statement for Babylon is the same. It symbolized the power and the strength of the empire. And the statement for believers reading this passage is equally clear. Here is the worship of creation over creator. And one of the first trips that Ruth and I took together when we started courting was a, a city break to Prague. And because I know all the most romantic spots to visit, we went one day to the Museum of Communism when we were there. And of course, the museum is filled with statues and busts and images of Vladimir Lenin, the embodiment of the socialist ideal. During the era in which communism held sway throughout Eastern Europe, these statues were everywhere, serving as a reminder of the power and the authority of the state and to prompt the people to pay allegiance and homage to the party and the leadership that enabled their supposedly utopian existence. Nebuchadnezzar's statue serves the same purpose. And since the entirety of this structure is made of the same material that represented Babylon in his dream, this statue makes the added statement of confidence in Babylon's eternal rule, rewriting the future that God has revealed to him to reflect his own arrogant wishes. Nebuchadnezzar has been given a vision from God. He's been given an interpretation of what that vision means, but he rejects that message, and he rejects the God who gave it to him. In fact, unless he is a dedicated student of the Old Testament Scriptures, he can surely have no idea just how emphatically he opposes God with the erecting of this statue and the demands that he sends to the very ends of the empire to have the governors and civil servants of all Babylon gather to dedicate and worship it. Because it was on the Babylonian plains in Genesis 11 that humankind, seeking to make a name for themselves, seeking, to, seeking the honor for themselves that God alone is worthy of, and seeking to disregard the command of the Lord to scatter and cover the earth, gathered to build the Tower of Babel. And now what do we see Nebuchadnezzar doing here in Daniel 3? 
but building a monument to his own rule, to create a heritage by his own will, and to give a unified focus for the empire who would converge upon it with religious fervor and pour out their praise for the realm and its king. It doesn't matter which part of the map you hail from. It doesn't matter which gods you usually honor. It doesn't matter the tongue in which you speak. All of it is subordinate to reverence for the state as declared by the universal language of bowing before the golden statue. And of course, this elevation of state or state ideals above all else is not something that's limited to 540 B.C., I've mentioned communism this morning already, and the the current regime in China is the ideal example. Christians are allowed to worship freely in that land, provided, of course, it's in the official Chinese church, which is sponsored, regulated, and censored by the government. Because you can have your beliefs, so long as they are outranked by your loyalty and faithfulness to your country. Even in 21st century UK, we have a version of this, because the gospel message that we proclaim is not welcome in the public sphere. When we mention Jesus in our schools or in our workplaces or in the corridors of government, then we commit the heinous crime of failing to observe separation of church and state. We taint our sterile, sanitized, secular society with offensive notions like the existence of a sovereign God, like the brokenness of humanity and salvation in the name of Christ alone. And people are made uncomfortable, which is contradictory to our state ideal of blissful ignorance. And so we're encouraged to keep our beliefs private, which of course means they must be secondary to the requests of our civic leaders. Of course, we still have enormous freedom compared with our brothers and sisters in other lands. But if we do speak up about our spiritual convictions, then our punishment is usually found in ridicule and exclusion, isn't it? Rather than being at the point of a gun. But Nebuchadnezzar's actions here and his insistence on the supremacy of the religion of state They're not so far removed from our experience as we might think. Of course, alongside the spectacle in this scene and the sense of power of the empire and the threat that's made to anyone thinking about being rebellious is a real sense of absurdity in the way that these verses are written. The repetition of satraps, prefects, and all the rest, and the repetition of this list of musical instruments rather than a summary of all that's been said is the sort of thing that we find in children's books. Has anyone ever read The Disgusting Sandwich by Gareth Edwards? No, it's a classic. You need to get your hands on that. It's the story of a badger that's chasing around a children's play park in pursuit of this sandwich that a child has dropped, and it gets progressively mankier and more revolting with every page. And on each page, you have a recap of everything that has happened to this sandwich over the course of the story, such that at the end, we learn that the sandwich is all covered in sand and smelly green goop with big black squish marks and hundreds of ants and grimy old feathers and slippery slime and oozy grey bubbles that glisten in the moonlight. Yum, yum. It's one of those sentences you have to take a long breath at the end of, a bit like satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials. So why would Daniel write in this way? This, This is a regime which threatens dissent with death by cremation in a fiery furnace. Why does the prophet make light of such a threatening situation and describe the pomp and ceremony surrounding it with such sarcasm? It's because it's an obvious affront to the truth. We're at our greatest risk from heresy and a deviation from what is good and godly and correct when it's subtle, aren't we? I remember shopping with my mum about 15 years ago and I was handed a tract in Tesco's car park and it all read pretty well, God is good, Jesus died for my sins, come and find out more, etc., etc., It was only when I read the back that I noticed in small lettering that it was a Watchtower publication from the Jehovah's Witnesses. 
So what looked like it was right was ultimately an invitation to blasphemy because the JWs don't believe that Jesus is God. And this tract was a subtle and a cunning attempt to lead people away from the truth. Public worship of a 90-foot golden statue is remarkably unsubtle. And though there is the threat of force here, there is also such a clear and obvious departure from appropriate Yahweh worship that the whole episode is presented as farce. And the nonsense of it is not lost on three men in particular. Verse 8, at this time some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. Verse 12, but there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Can I have the next title, please? It can be a lonely business standing up for God in a hostile world, which Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego find here as they are the only three individuals who refuse to submit to the imperial order to bow before the golden statue. And they may have got away with it if it wasn't for those pesky Chaldeans. It was these astrologers that were shown up by Daniel's ability to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. And so it's perhaps unsurprising that these are the guys who have it in for the Hebrews. And what do they say? Well, they accuse these men of ingratitude, having been given their elevated position by the king. And they accuse Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, ironically, of blasphemy for their failure to follow in the king's religious footsteps, and for their refusal to bow before the idol of gold. And you know, the arguments for their compromise are strong, aren't they? Because they have been given these important jobs, and it's always good to have the people of God serving in high places for the protection of the remnant. What's the lesser evil? Losing the opportunity to influence the emperor, or giving a curt nod of the head in the direction of a shiny statue? The king has given these guys even a second chance. What grace he has extended to them. Where's the harm in meeting Nebuchadnezzar halfway? They've made their point. They have undoubtedly won the respect of those watching on by their courage. But surely now is the time to play the game, to obey the king, and for everyone to move on. Otherwise, it's certain death, which is reiterated in verse 15. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand. But this is the very reason that they have refused to pay homage to the statue in the first place. Because their own respect and standing are irrelevant to them. They're not interested in making daring statements or making names for themselves. Their response to this idol is concerned with nothing more than the name of God, the worship of God, and the glory of God. And they know what they are supposed to do in this moment. Because the Lord has prepared his servants for exactly this kind of situation. And not just Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but all of God's people, both then and now. You see, these men respond in the way they do because they know God's revelation in Scripture. Because they know the law of Moses, given by the hand of the Almighty himself in the book of Exodus. They remember commandment number one, Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. They remember commandment 2, Exodus 20 and verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or on the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. And they remember that the word of God, given by a sovereign God, given by the God who can do all things, including rescuing three Hebrews from this king's grasp, they remember that this word is the only fitting and trustworthy instruction by which they must live their lives, whether they are in Babylon or back in Judah or here in Hamilton or anywhere else on the earth. 
And so even when they are mercifully offered another opportunity to right their wrong and to save their lives and their careers by pacifying the king, again, they refuse to obey. Beginning at verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. King Nebuchadnezzar, tell your musicians to save their breath. This is my favorite bit of this whole passage. I feel as if I could have spent all morning looking at just these three verses. Maybe you're thinking, I wish you had. But there's so much here that we need to learn and apply as we live for the Lord in this world. Firstly, notice the speed of their reaction. That's important. Because sometimes when we have time to decide and think through a course of action, we have long enough to talk ourselves into a compromise and talk ourselves out of doing what we know is the right thing to do. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are straight in with their answer. They don't need to discuss the correct response. From what they've learned in their study of Scripture, they know instinctively what it is. And with their quick reply, they are obedient to God's expectations. And they also go on to proclaim God's character. What better way to use what may be your final breaths than to glorify God? And that's what these men do by explaining to Nebuchadnezzar exactly who their allegiance is to, exactly what he is capable of, and exactly who the king is dealing with. You think there is no God who can snatch us from the jaws of death? Let us tell you about Yahweh. This is the creator of the universe and all its contents, who redeemed Israel from the fierce grip of Pharaoh with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great terror and with signs and wonders. If you think this God of ours is incapable, then on your head be it. As for us, we will go to the furnace before we will disobey him. What an epitaph. And this is the one that we should all desire, isn't it? A final declaration of obedience to the Lord, because ultimately that's how our faith is demonstrated. Faith obeys the truth of God, and it recognizes the sovereignty of God. And we see that so powerfully in verse 18 here, because where the conviction of these three men is that God is easily capable of rescuing them, they don't know whether he will or not. If God was our servant, he would be predictable. We would know exactly what he's going to do in any given situation, but he's not our servant. And rather than try and force the Lord's hand, rather than make attempt to, to plot God's course for him or to try and manipulate him into a course of action, these three men submit to his authority, not knowing whether God will be glorified in their deaths or in their miraculous rescue. This is what biblical faith looks like when we trust and obey in what God has said and leave the decision-making stuff to his will and his wisdom. As the Scottish theologian Samuel Rutherford once said, events are the Lord's, deeds and duties are ours. Biblical faith then doesn't predict how God will maneuver. It simply holds to what he has already revealed. And so when we find ourselves in the position where the Lord has not blessed us in the way that we have fervently and eagerly desired, and he hasn't given us the good things that we have requested, the new job, the new relationship, the new addition to the family, when we find ourselves in those situations, the biblically faithful will still conclude that God is worthy of praise. Because for all we may find it easy to deduce that He doesn't love us or doesn't care for us or doesn't bless us, depending on how we are feeling, what He has breathed out in His Word 
reminds us that He has given us everything in His Son, and that He knows best what we need to draw us closer to Him. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their deliverance is less important to them than their obedience to God. Do you ever stop and wonder, what would you have done in their situation? As daydreams go, it's not usually a comfortable experience, is it? Hands up if you've ever seen The Great Escape. Every time it's on TV, I try and watch as much of it as possible before a wife or a child objects. But every time those daring allied servicemen climb down into Charles Bronson's tunnel, my stomach tightens and my pulse quickens. And I wonder how on earth I would have coped with the claustrophobia of the escape route if I had been one of those prisoners of war. But then, of course, I remember this is pointless anxiety because I'm not an inmate in a Second World War prison camp. I'm sitting and watching telly. And in the same way, I think all of us put ourselves in this position of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego at some point, and we sweat over whether our faith and obedience would be enough. And we disappoint ourselves when we decide that it wouldn't, when the reality is that the vast majority of us will never find ourselves in that position. Why then should we expect the grace to face something that we will never encounter? God has promised to be with us and to strengthen us and to give us peace through every trial He brings our way. If that happens to be the furnace, He will be there. If it isn't, then He won't give us the boldness and confidence and the grace to stare down that incinerator door. He's promised us what we need, not everything that anyone will ever need. Wandering in the desert, God gave the Israelites the manna they needed for the day ahead and no more. But He did it every day and they never went hungry. Let's not worry too much about how we would deal with the battles we will likely never fight. Instead, let's be switched on to the fight that we are right in the middle of right now. Because where we might not be placed in front of a golden statue, we have to choose between idols and God every single day of our lives. For the various pleasures, desires, and attitudes that our world promises will lead to fulfillment will vie for the worship and adoration that God alone deserves. Will we make decisions that show our love for our finances to be greater than our love for God? Do we gain more satisfaction showing our friends the new house, the new car, the new sofa, the new phone that we've bought, rather more than we do sharing the verse through which God spoke to us that morning? Do we idolize our families, setting God just behind our children and our parents and our hierarchy of affections? There is no burning furnace pressuring us to make the wrong choice in these things, and yet how often we make the wrong choice. How weak our resolve, how light the shove that pushes us off the narrow path. Let's pray for the grace and the steadfastness that we need in this battle to make the right decisions in these things so that we too may respect the glory of God. I have two points left to make, but the last two are much shorter than the first two, so don't despair. Let's read from verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. Next title, please. When Nebuchadnezzar, well, Nebuchadnezzar reacts in exactly the same way that we would expect him to, doesn't he? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are prepared for incineration. The king is clearly worried that God is able to rescue from a furnace at Gasmark 1, and so he orders this temperature raised higher. 
And even before these prisoners are over the threshold, the whole irony of this episode is exposed, isn't it? For the soldiers who are tasked with throwing them in don't survive the blast of heat when the door is open. So the men who attend the emperor, the men who obey his instructions, the ones who bow before the idol are the ones who lose their lives because Nebuchadnezzar cannot save his servants. But the Lord, on the other hand, verse 25, he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. In the most miraculous way, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are delivered from the flames. Or to put it more precisely, they are delivered in the flames. God's messengers are supported, they are vindicated, and their message is confirmed. Not not that the, the proclamation makes any impact on the king immediately, but he is awestruck at their survival, the freedom with which they walk around in the oven, and the appearance of this fourth occupant in his fiery furnace. Who is this person? Nebuchadnezzar describes him as having the appearance of a son of the gods, and frankly what that means is difficult to grasp when you're taking it from the mouth of a polytheistic pagan. But clearly he has some otherworldly appearance, which has led most readers of Daniel to deduce that it's either an angel or is the pre-incarnate Christ, an appearance of God the Son half a millennium before his embodiment in Mary's womb. It's impossible to make a decision based on what we find in the text, but it's important that we are aware that this is a physical demonstration of the presence of God with his children in their distress. The covenant promise that God would be with his faithful people is shown to be relevant and real in the lives of these three men. I will be with you, he told Moses in the book of Exodus, and it proves true for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as well. This is, of course, a token of what the Lord can do rather than the blueprint of what he will do in situations like this one. For we know the Lord to be capable of anything, but we don't actually see a huge number of miraculous events in the Old Testament. What we do have tends to be gathered in small pockets of history, times of national emergency in the kingdom of God, times like the Exodus, like the establishing of the ministry of the prophets around Elijah and Elisha, the period of the exile, and of course moving into the New Testament, following 400 years of silence from God with the arrival and the ministry of God the Son, our Emmanuel, the definitive expression of God's promise to be with us. As he took on flesh and walked among us, experiencing all the trials and stresses and temptations of human life, of all the enticements and compromises to sin that we face on a daily basis, he endured them all, and he never wavered once. Yet he had his own fiery furnace moment. As falsely accused and condemned to death, he was nailed to a cross and left to die. And unlike Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he did not have the comfort of a physical demonstration of his father's presence. He had no angel to relieve his pain and no heavenly hand of rescue to spare him in his greatest need. And why? Because God was glorified in his death. Because on that cross he bore the punishment that we deserve for every compromise that we make, for every choice of an idol above him, for every sin and transgression that deviates from God's perfect standards and demands God's judgment. He served the sentence that we are due. He endured the penalty that would justly destroy us. So that by putting our trust and faith in Him, by repenting of our lives, live for ourselves, and by crowning Him our sovereign Lord, we might be spared, spared eternal separation from God. And instead, we might look forward to everlasting life in His presence, clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness 
and faithfulness. And when we are there, we will gather with folk from every land, folk of every race, folk of every language, every social category, and together we will bow and we will pay homage and we will praise, but not before a golden statue, but before a Savior who was fixed to an old rugged cross for a world of lost sinners. He was slain. The Lord Jesus Christ is the antidote to Babel's tower and to Nebuchadnezzar's idolatrous statue. He is the embodiment of God's promise to deal with sin and to open the way to his kingdom for those who love him, rescuing us from the clutches of death and bestowing a life that will never come to an end. And so what we have in a relationship with Jesus is a cosmic and permanent version of what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego enjoy here. Last title, please. As they emerge from the furnace without any ill effects, without even a whiff of smoke on their clothes, we see the extent, the perfection of God's protection over his servants. And as they approach the king, Nebuchadnezzar is once again impressed by the God of these Hebrews. But it doesn't change anything, does it? The king demands respect for God and threatens those who would blaspheme him with death even though his last attempts to enforce a death penalty were none too successful. At least this time he changes the method. But more importantly, he continues to describe the Lord as belonging to other people. Verse 28, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar is captivated by the power of God, but not the fact that this power has been a demonstration of a kept promise of grace and protection for his covenant people. And so spiritually, the king remains no closer to God in verse 30 than he was in verse 1. If you're with us this morning, if you've never given your life to Jesus, don't make the same mistake as Nebuchadnezzar. Look beyond the miraculous moments in this passage. See the relationship that God is calling you into and respond. Don't think because times are difficult or that you're struggling in some way that he's not listening or that he has no care for you. He took these three men into the flames. He didn't shield them from the schemes of their enemies, but he was with them every step of the way, just as he promised every one of us. He is our Lord and our God. He is our only hope in life and death. Celebrate the magnificence of his character. Experience the depth of his love and look forward to an eternal future in the radiance of his unparalleled glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words and for this passage from it. Lord, we thank you for the reminder that you are a glorious God, that all creation bows before your authority, that even fire is obedient to your command and its flames flicker according to your instruction. Encourage us with this reminder of your presence with us. Challenge us with the importance of studying your word and allowing our Bible knowledge to be applied by your people. And Lord, help us to marvel at the grace, mercy, love, and glory of our God. Keep these things on our hearts and minds, we pray, for our blessing and for your greater renown. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.